if the market keeps going up for a year or two, which, hey, I don't have a crystal ball. I hope it does. It might. It has before in the past. You just never know. But I'm positioning myself so that it can sustain the downturn and still get some of the benefit on the upside. Best ever listeners, I'm so excited to share today's sponsor with you. It's Eastern Union Funding and Arbor Realty Trust. If you're in the multifamily space, you likely recognize these names, but have you used them? Uh, I'm guessing if you haven't, then you probably know someone who has. I can tell you personally, we have used uh, Mark Belsky. He is a point person at Eastern Union Funding as a partner with us. And he has helped us secure debt uh, for actually a deal we closed on this month. And we've worked with him. Um, In addition, my clients, my program, my consulting program have worked with him to successfully close on deals. Uh, When we were starting out, Ashcroft was starting out, we had somewhat of a track record, but we weren't fully as established with our investor network. I went to him and we secured some equity, $500,000 in equity to fund one of our deals. While he works with more institutional partners, he's brought $200 million in equity over the last 12 months. He was able to help us out there and we've built a relationship with him and Eastern Union Funding ever since. So if you need equity for your deal and you have a track record, then he's your point person. His number is 212-897-9875. If you need debt, then he partners up with Arbor on a lot of transactions. So if you're a multifamily borrower who wants agency or bridge debt, then that's the team to work with. Uh, We have worked with their team, both Eastern Union and Arbor, on deals. And people who have purchased our deals, purchased deals from us, have used Arbor, as well as my clients in my consulting program, they've used it. So this is a recommendation that comes from firsthand experience. And the last thing I'll say about uh, working with Mark Belsky at Eastern Union is that if you need a loan guarantor, but don't have that track record quite yet, then Mark can look at what you've, the deal you've got And assuming it checks out, he can make introductions to people he knows as potential loan guarantors for your deal. So debt, equity, and potentially loan guarantors. Uh, All you need, well, you need to find a deal, obviously. Um, But besides that, you know, the other main components of the deal they can help you out with. So talk to Mark Belsky. His email is mbelsky at easterneq.com. And his phone number, 212-897-9875. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff. And today, well, first off, I hope you're having a best ever weekend because it is Sunday. We got a special segment for you called Skill Set Sunday. And here's something fun. We're going to talk about defensive investing using 1031 exchanges. I'm not exactly certain what that means, but our guest, Dave Foster, who's an expert with 1031s, will tell us what that means. First off, how you doing, Dave? I'm doing awesome, Joe. It's great to be here. 
Yeah, well, I'm glad that you're back. And best ever listeners, if you recognize Dave's name and voice, well, then your loyal best ever listener, episode 566, about a thousand days ago, titled The Skinny on 1031 Exchanges and How You Can Win. He talked about his best ever advice there, so you can go check it out. He's an expert on 1031s, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. So what is defensive investing using 1031 exchanges? Defensive investing. Awesome question. By the way, I love it that this is no fluff radio because that's exactly where we're heading. It's right into the deep end of things for seasoned investors that are wanting to maximize what they take out of this next market cycle. My gosh, has it really been a thousand episodes, Joe? It has been a thousand since we've caught up 1500 for the show. Insane. So what has happened over the course of that time is we've seen a market go from gold nuggets on the ground to being mature to where everybody's starting to ask the question of, when's this thing going to crash? When's it going to turn around? How do I protect myself? And if you recall, what the 1031 exchange does is allows investors to sell and then purchase investment real estate to keep building their portfolio. Now, usually it's used to expand portfolios, to move their portfolio from one location to another, to expand the portfolio in terms of different classes of properties, but it always ends up with a purchase. So when people start to get a little nervous because they've made some money, they try to figure out, how do I get it out? Because the 1031 is not necessarily set up to do that. So they want to protect themselves. And a long, long time ago, I happened to be watching a poker game. Now, not one of these TV production poker games with the millions of dollars piled up on tables and stuff. This is a real-life poker game. And it was funny because I realized after a few minutes, Joe, that the person who was doing the best at that table was not the person with the most chips in front of them. Mm-hmm. They were very quietly, occasionally taking chips off the table, and I'd watch them, put them into their pocket, and leave a few. And it was funny. It was fascinating me so much. You're not supposed to do that, by the way, in well, poker. Yeah. <laughs> but that was what was happening. I was going, what <laughs> It worked. Do? They got away with it. <laughs> exactly. So what this guy said, he goes, we call it rat holing. <laughs> That's a good term for it. Yeah, rat holing. And what it is is we're taking the bank's money and leaving that in play, and I'm putting my money in my pocket. I thought, what a beautiful metaphor for where I want to end up at the end of a real estate market, only with the bank's money in play and with my money safely in my pocket. So I started to let that percolate with how you can do that with 1031 exchanges. And here is the gist of it. What it is, Joe, is an opportunity and a very strategic practice to begin to separate your debt and your cash. Debt, which we associate with risk, because if you're in debt, there's always risk going into a market downturn of not being able to cover that net, of ended up having to adjust rents too low to meet your obligations, all those sorts of risks. Whereas cash is usually associated with very low or no risk. That cash is mine. Nobody can touch it. I've got it rattled for a rainy day. So in a 1031 exchange, what defensive investing is referring to is the idea that instead of selling a property and buying several properties, instead of selling several properties and buying one property 
what you're going to be doing is selling a property and you're going to probably purchase multiple properties, but you're going to allocate the cash proceeds in a different way. Let's do it for instance. Let's say you're selling a $500,000 asset that's got $100,000 in debt on it. So you sell that property, you come out of that into the 1031 with $400,000 in cash. Now, if you remember from the rules of 1031, your obligations to defer all tax are to purchase at least $500,000 and to use all $400,000 in cash to do that. But you don't have to allocate that $400,000 in any particular way. So what you can do is take $300,000 of that and go buy a debt-free cash asset. Mm -hmm. Now that starts to feel very, very good. You've now protected that. You're still generating return. It just may not be as good a return as you could get with a highly leveraged asset. But remember, our goal here is not to maximize return, but to maximize safety. We're being defensive because we're anticipating a market shift of sorts. So part of your 1031 goes to buy a debt-free cash asset. Then you take the remaining $100,000 and you leverage that maybe 50% or maybe even 25% to go buy another $400,000 asset. So at the end of the 1031, did you purchase at least as much as you sold? Well, absolutely. You bought a $300,000 asset free and clear, Mm -hmm. and you bought a $400,000 asset with $100,000 down. So you did purchase at least as much as you sold. Did you use all of your proceeds to do that? Absolutely, you did. You just allocated them in a slightly different way. What's that impact of what you've got going? You've got $300,000 rattle. That's going to be safe. That's the nest egg. That's protection. Feels very, very good. Meanwhile, though, you do still get some of the benefit of leverage because you took the 100000 leveraged that into a 400000 So you're actually still getting some of those normal benefits of, and higher ROIs because of the cash on leverage and the arbitrage between what you're able to borrow from or, and what you're able to make on the open market. Mm-hmm. And in a gist, that's what defensive investing is. It's simply a placement of your portfolio that starts to separate cash and debt. And I guess the challenge that I can see is the intention of this is to take, we'll keep using the poker analogy, take some chips off the table. But if you're 1031ing, then you are keeping the chips on the table because you're still using those chips to buy another property, although in this case, and one of the properties you're not buying with leverage. In my mind, if we're selling at the top of the market and the intention is for this to get some chips off the table, when we do a 1031, it's likely we're also going to be buying in a similar market cycle because it's not that much time that's going to go from sell to buy the new property. So we're still buying at a high point. So please elaborate more on those two points and just so I can understand a little bit better. Well, that's always one of the biggest challenges of the 1031 is that because it starts with a sale and ends with a purchase within a compressed time frame, the worst time to have to sell to start a 1031 is in a buyer's market because you're offering to sell your property. The worst time to have to buy a replacement property in a 1031 is exactly where we find ourselves now at the top of the market. Mm-hmm. Of course, the reverse is also true. The best time to sell is at the top of the market. 
So it's kind of a, one of those old Dr. Doolittle dilemmas, the push me, pull you, or a chicken and egg, if you will. The best time for the first half of your 1031 is always going to be the worst time to accomplish the second half. Right. So defensive investing simply acknowledges that that's just going to be kind of the way it is. Mm. And what you've got to do is try and find that property, which might lead you with your leveraged property to say, because this might be something that I might have to hold through a cycle. If I'm buying at the top, I may have to hold it through a cycle. So I'm going to make sure that the leverage I take on it can sustain what I would deem a normal and possible hit on value or a reduction in rent rolls or whatever impact I see coming from the downturn. So I'm always going to look at it with a conservative eye, even the leverage side. But because I have part of my portfolio over here in cash, the only function I've got to be able to do is keep my rent rolls above taxes and insurance and capital expense. So I can go through a down cycle very easily with a cash-owned asset. On the other side, I've just got to manage the brake and the accelerator pedal of leverage to make sure that I don't leverage it too high so I can sustain the downturn, but I also leverage it high enough that if the market keeps going up for a year or two, which, hey, I don't have a crystal ball. I hope it does. It might. It has before in the past. You just never know. But I'm positioning myself so that it can sustain the downturn and still get some of the benefit on the upside. Do you have clients who do this? We do. And they all start to come out of the woodwork at about this time in the market. Because traditionally, the best way to handle the 1031 exchange is to to get cash out, is to sell your property, do the 1031 exchange, buy your new property, and then refinance. Mm-hmm. That's conventional wisdom. Take cash out and do whatever you want to with it. Well, the problem is that exposes you to an over-leverage susceptibility. Yep. And in addition to that, where's the cash-free safety net? So instead, what they start to ask is, they say, well, Dave, I want cash, but I don't want to have to carry on all this debt. Well, let's find a good cash-performing asset that you can buy for cash, generate an income, and then let's manage the debt over on the opposite side. And that's where they start to get to. Now, even a further application of this, and what we're really starting to see more and more, are investors who are saying, you know what? My time is over. I had a great run. I'm 60, 70, 80, whatever. I had a guy who was 88 years old from Anchorage, Alaska. Yesterday, called me up and goes, I'm finally done with it. I'm done being a landlord. I'm 88. I said, okay, good for you. So what he's doing is this exact thing. But he's putting his properties into additionally, not just cash, but passive managed properties, either through fractional ownership or tenants and common syndications. Mm-hmm. So he's generating the benefit of cash investing, protection in the market, and he turned himself from a landlord into uh, what I call, I guess, a lazy boy landlord. <laughs> Checks his bank account or goes to the mailbox once a month. Mm-hmm. Any unique challenges to this approach where you're separating it out, buying one cash, leveraging one that we should be aware of? Yeah, there's a bunch of uh, there's a bunch of things you want to really you know pay attention to because they can kill your return real quickly. Cost of borrowing, of course, is always a huge deal. And again, when we liken that to 
the brake and the accelerator pedal of leverage. As the market matures, typically, again, interest rates start to creep up. So you have got to have an eagle eye on your ROI. You've got to know what that quarter percent of interest uptick is going to do to your return. I usually counsel that people avoid any sort of resettable debt, any sort of variable interest kind of thing. Lock it in. Again, get rid of the risk that three years from now or five years from now, in the middle of a downturn, you see an interest reset that pops things on you at the same moment when you're having to reduce rents to keep tenants. Mm -hmm. You don't want to get in that position. So watching your interest rates, keeping an eagle eye on the actual return on investment on the leverage side is key. On the cash side, you've got to make sure that you're going to be generating enough cash that it's going to be livable for you, even in a downturn, because when's the worst time to sell an asset at the bottom of a market? And whether it's owned for cash or not, you don't want to get caught having to sell that asset once it's lost 15 to 20% of its value in a correction mm-hmm. for a couple of reasons. Obviously, number one, because I just always hate selling things for less than I buy it. But number two, because when you're a 1031 investor, no matter when you sell, if you sell an asset without doing another tip through an exchange, you're going to end up paying tax on the profits all pulled forward. So the worst thing that you can do as a 1031 investor is sell because you have to in the middle of a downturn market because that not only basically wipes out everything you've done up to that point, it leaves you with a big tax bill and there's not enough real estate movement to help you overcome that. Yeah, that's a great point. Just the locking in the interest rate, making sure we have enough cash, and then not being forced to sell. When people ask me about my thoughts on if they should 1031 or if they shouldn't, and my thought process is, yes, you definitely should, but don't force yourself into a 1031 because there could be a risk factor of buying a property for the sake of buying a property versus it actually being a good investment. And what you really don't want to lose is the original amount of money that you had if you buy a bad deal. But then when you do find a good deal, then do these other things that you mentioned and you'll mitigate the risk for the downturn and whatever else happens. Yeah, that's exactly right. Of course, when you are early on in your career and it's your first 1031 or your second the gains many times are not so substantial that the pain of foregoing a 1031 isn't nearly so bad. But when you think about an investor who's at the end of their career, they're at 20, 30 years of investing. They've seen the ups and the downs. They've kept their tax deferral in place. I've got a family from Connecticut that right now we are on their third generation of 1031 investing. Those musical chairs will not stop. They will always 1031. Crazy, (laughs) crazy, crazy. Yeah, grandpa 1031. Dad got the properties at the step-up basis, so the tax went away, but he immediately embarked on his own investing career using 1031s because he watched his dad. Mm -hmm. And now we're doing 1031s for the children. When you get to that kind of point, it's in your blood, and there is so much pent-up gain after you've taken a property four or five properties forward, that you really, you want to do the 1031, you need to do the 1031, 
But you're right. You've got to do it smart and not just for the sake of avoiding the taxes. Anything else as it relates to the concept of defensive investing using 1031s, which is basically splitting the baby in half or splitting the baby in some way, paying cash. That's, that's so somewhat Solomonic. <laughs> oh my gosh. Paying cash for one deal, leveraging the other. That way you're mitigating risk by not having a lender on both. Yeah, absolutely. There's a couple of the things that are really nice little twists that you can use that will help you to hedge the risk. The property that you pay for cash also many times could be a property, actually, I guess either property would work, could be a property that might be something you would want to live in one day. Now, remember, the 1031 exchange is only for investment real estate. Yeah. The property that you live in has different rules, and they're actually very beautiful rules. They fall under Section 121 of the IRS code. And what they say, Joe, is that if you have lived in a property that you own for two out of the previous five years, you can sell that property and take the first $250,000 in profit tax-free. And if you're married, you get to double that to $500,000. Now, that by itself is a huge deal. The average American stays in their house five years. So over the course of 25 or 30 years of a normal life of an investor, you could literally move in, live for a few years, sell, and do that five times, and each time take $500,000 in profit tax-free. Now, that by itself is huge, but where does that fit into defensive investing? Well, if you are anticipating a market correction, and if one does in fact happen, at some point in time, you want to realize that you've actually got a three-legged stool or I guess if we were going to continue our metaphor, we've got a three-headed baby we're dealing with. <laughs> and you've got the leveraged property, you've got the property that's held for cash, and you've got your primary residence. Now, if you are a real estate investor and it's all going to heck in a handbasket and you need some cash, what would be the best property to sell? It might be the leveraged property because you can get rid of debt, but remember, there's a lot of 1031 deferred tax in that one. And that's the one where you're generating your highest ROI because of the arbitrage of the leverage. It might be the property that you hold for cash, but same thing. You've got a lot of deferred tax in that property. And darn it, that's a debt-free instrument that's just generating cash for you. But you've got to sell something. What if you sold your primary residence? That money is tax-free. Where are you going to move? Why not into one of those other two properties? Because while the IRS requires that in a 1031 exchange, you sell investment real estate and you buy real estate that you intend to also hold for investment, there is no prohibition against changing the use of that property after a period of time. Most of our investors feel pretty good at a year or two. There's even an IRS safe harbor where they guarantee it after two years that you've satisfied the meaning of intent for investment purposes. So if you were to sell your primary residence, take that money tax-free, you now bought yourself some living capital or even better, you just bought a new war chest 
to start to invest in properties where? At the bottom of a real estate market. Mm-hmm. So you could buy a property with your 1031 proceeds. You could buy a property that is, say, a large house in an area that you want to live in in two to three years and rent it out or at least post it to be rented out for that period of time, two years. And then you can decide to, oh, I'm going to sell my primary residence and move into that other property. That's exactly correct. Treat it as investment for a couple of years. And once that has been satisfied, you can always change its use and change your use by moving in. I have a gentleman here local to me in St. Petersburg who is a realtor who has three condos that he is 1031 into on St. Pete Beach. His retirement plan, the entirety of his retirement plan is that when he retires, he's going to sell the house he lives in right now and he's going to move into the first one of those condos. So what does he do? He gets a guarantee for retirement house on the beach. Way to go. What an awesome deal that is. After he has owned that and lived there for a while, he's going to sell that. Now, the rules when you are converting a property from an investment property into your primary residence are a little bit more restricting. We don't have time to talk about it today, but contact me at will if you want at the 1031investor.com and we can talk through it. He's still going to get part of that profit tax-free. So his retirement plan is to move into a beachfront house, live in it, and sell it in a few years, and pay a little bit of tax, and take a bunch of profit tax-free. Where do you think he's going to move, Joe? Next one. Exactly. And then the next one. And it was the funniest thing because I asked his wife, who is the most patient soul in the world, I said, so how are you guys going to know when it's time to move? What's going to be the trigger for this? Because that's got to be a little traumatic. And what she said to me was, Dave, we're going to know that it's time to sell and move whenever it's time to redecorate. (laughs) What a beautiful gig. So that's his retirement plan. And what he's doing is slowly over time, converting tax deferred dollars into tax free dollars. That's the other half of the defensive investing equation. That's great stuff. I love learning and I learn a whole lot whenever we talk and I'm grateful that you are on the show again. How can the best ever listeners get in touch with you and learn more? You can always check us at our website, which is the 1031investor.com. And by the way, for those of your listeners that are interested, we're launching in September at that site on-demand video training on 1031 exchanges. This is the exact same training that I deliver nationwide to as professional development courses for real estate agents and brokers. And we're going to make it accessible for free to the general public. So check us out at the 1031investor.com. See the assets that we've got there. My address is very easy. Dave at the1031investor.com. Defensive investing using 1031 exchanges. Basically, you are buying one property with cash from the proceeds of the original property and another property leveraging that. And then you threw the wrinkle in there for maybe even having that be a property you want to live in down the road. Really interesting stuff. Lots of ways we could discuss a lot more about this. And I know we just scratched the surface, but I'm glad that you talked to us about the concept. So thanks we'll for being back on the show. Let's do it again. There we go. Thanks again for being on the show and hope you have a best ever weekend.
Thank you. Do you need debt for your deal, equity for your deal, or maybe a loan guarantor to help you get qualified for the financing? Talk to Mark Belsky. His number is 212-897-9875. That's 212-897-9875. His email is mbelsky at Eastern. EQ.com. Feeling lost on your roadmap to wealth? Tune in to the newly launched REI Foundation podcast where hosts Jason and Peely give you all the steps and missteps towards achieving your investing dreams. Featuring interviews from top industry professionals, make sure you listen and subscribe to REI Foundation podcast at com.